today is from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 uh, to 23. Hopefully it should appear on the screen above. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same, sorry, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and all authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only for the present age, but also for the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of God. Just to quickly follow up on that announcement that Florence gave, the conversation we're having today, one o'clock on singleness, we're joined, we will be joined later by an amazing guest speaker. Her name is Pamela Brown Peterside. I'll introduce her later during the event, but she's been a mentor for both my wife and I and someone that I'm thrilled our, chance, our church is going to have a ch- chance to learn from. Um, in addition to that, as was mentioned, we all need to be talking about and thinking about singleness and if a great guest speaker and an important topic aren't enough, lunch is provided. So you have three exciting reasons to join us today at one. We'll say more about this later, but the event is actually down in the courtyard. If you go through the courtyard, it's in um, the basketball court basement area over there. So really nice spot, and we'll have people to point you that way. But before that, we have a sermon. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 1 today. And uh, we began a couple of weeks ago a series looking at the book of Ephesians. And today, if you uh, look with me, verse 17, verse 18 of our passage, Paul says he's praying for the church. He's, He's crying out to God on their behalf, and he is praying that they would know something. There's something he wants them to know. And this year as a church, we are thinking about what does it mean to grow in Jesus? If you're a follower of Christ or if you're thinking about following Jesus, we're asking the question, what does it mean to grow as somebody who's following him? And more than that, what does it mean for us to grow as a church family? And today, what we're going to see is that we won't grow unless we know the thing that Paul is praying for us to know. We're not going to grow. We're not going to experience maturity in Jesus if we don't know the thing that Paul says, you've got to know this. And so for today's sermon, here's what I want to show you. First, what is it that Paul wants us to know? Then second, what does it actually mean to know something? What does it mean to know what Paul's putting in front of us? And then third and finally, how we can know it. So what is it he wants us to know? What does it mean to know? And how can we know it? So first, What is it that Paul wants us to know? Now, before we get to the text, let me set up this point like this. About two years ago, I read an article, maybe some of you saw it, by Adam Grant. And he said, 
the word of 2021, like the word to summarize the whole year, was languishing. Didn't even see that article, languishing. And at one spot in the article, he describes this collective sense that we've all felt like this. We just feel somewhat joyless and aimless. And it turns out there's a name for that, languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. Languishing is to feel like you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. We become indifferent to our indifference. So languishing, it's a lack of motivation, a lack of initiative, a lack of passion. And about a year later, Uchi Anazor wrote a book called Overcoming Apathy. And he said that apathy is the twin cousin of languishing. And that for people who are in the church, for people who are following God, apathy is actually one of the greatest spiritual dangers. Jesus called it being lukewarm. In which you're neither feeling passionate about God, zeal and energy, or on the other hand, you're feeling like God is totally distant, totally absent. The middle space there is what you might call spiritual apathy. We are just going through the motions, kind of coasting. You know God's out there. You kind of believe and you're kind of connected. But you also know you're not nearly as passionate about him as you should be. You're not nearly as energetic about following him as you should be. Not nearly disciplined enough. There's a kind of spiritual apathy, a lethargy that's come over all of your life. And so this morning as we come to Ephesians 1, my question is, do you feel that way? Or have you felt that way? spiritual apathy, a kind of languishing. And if so, look with me again at verse 18 of our passage. Because Paul says, there's something that I want you to know. And then he gets to verse 19 and he says, the culmination of what you need to know, the climax of what God's people need to tap into is verse 19, God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, <laughs> incomparably great power. I got to give you a quick tutorial in some Greek because that's the language the New Testament was written in. The word power is dy- uh, dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite or dynamic. It means something powerful, like almost explosive. And then the word right before that, Paul says, incomparably great. The word great is megathos, where we get our word mega. <laughs> And then right before that, incomparably, is a compound word, hyperbolo. Hyper, supercharged, think kids running around. And balo means abundance. So that phrase, do you hear what Paul's saying? I want you to know the supercharged, abundant, mega power of God, which is for you if you believe. Now, I need that this morning. Maybe you do too. So often I'm going through life and I just feel like I'm coasting. There's a kind of blah. There's a kind of doing my thing, going through the motions. And I need a jolt of the supercharged, abundant, mega power of God that is for me and for you if you believe There was a moment in history when that power was fully on display. And Paul tells us about it in verse 19. He says, that power 
is the same power as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Here's what Paul's saying. If you're a Christian, there is a power that's available to you. There's a power that's possible to be on display in your life. It's God's supercharged, abundant, mega power. And if you want to know when it was at work most climactically, Paul says, think about Jesus. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross. And yet, the claim of the Bible is that three days later, God raised him from the dead. That actually death, which is this unconquerable foe, was conquered. This enemy that's been plaguing humanity since our first parents turned from God, that plague was healed in Jesus. And Paul says, right now, this moment today, if you're a Christian, the same power that God used when he raised Jesus from the dead, that power is at work in your life. That power is available to you. If we really believe that, it would change everything. Let me give you a couple of examples. Just drawing out the implications. What does it mean that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that that power can be at work in your life? A couple of examples. First, think about it this way. If that's true, it means that there's always hope. Some of you right now are facing situations and you honestly would say it feels hopeless. It might be something that you're wrestling with personally. Maybe there's a habit, a addiction, a habitual sin. Maybe it's a disposition or a manner of behavior and you look at it and you say, I don't want to do this anymore and I can't stop. And I have no power to change. I have no power. I have no hope. It's never, I've wanted it to go away and it's not going away. Do you realize Jesus wasn't kind of dead? He was completely dead. From the perspective of anyone looking at what was happening, that situation was hopeless. Like there was no coming back from that. And yet when it seemed completely hopeless, God reached down and with his power raised Jesus from the dead. Maybe in your life there's a relationship. Maybe there's a sibling or someone, a friend, and the relationship is fracturing, it's breaking. Maybe there's somebody, if you're a Christian, maybe there's somebody in your life that you desperately want to see come follow Jesus. And even as I say that, you think, God, oh, be great, but there's just no way. Friends, if the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your life, there's always hope. Because Jesus was dead. And in that moment, God raised him back to life. Here's another implication. Not only is there always hope, but second implication if this is really true, you don't have to be afraid. The most common command in the Bible, the thing that God said to his people more than any other, is do not be afraid. Now, the only reason that you tell people not to be afraid so much is because you know that the world they live in is really scary. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to say it constantly. But over and over and over again, God comes to his people and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And what's interesting is that after Jesus rose from the dead, he was actually meeting a couple of women who were followers of his. And when Jesus says them, uh, sees them, <clears throat> the first thing he says is, 
hi. And they're stunned. You know, he just died, and there he is. And he says, hi, and they fall down in amazement. They're shocked. They're, they're, they don't, they're beside them, like, there he is. And then the first thing Jesus says to them is, don't be afraid. And you know, that morning when Jesus said that, I think it probably sounded different than it ever sounded before. Because on that moment, Jesus did something that had never been done. He faced the greatest foe and he won. And he came out the other side. And that morning as he faced those women, even though God had said time and time again to his people, don't be afraid. When Jesus said it that morning, it was as if he was saying, I went through hell and back. I went into the ultimate shadow and I've come out on the other side. And now, no matter what you face, and sometimes we do walk through the darkest valley, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When you do, and as you do, you do not need to be afraid, ultimately. Doesn't mean we won't have moments of fear. Doesn't mean we won't have moments of, how are we gonna make it? But Jesus says, if, if the power that raised me from the dead is at work in your life, if that same power guarantees that you're going to get safely home, then ultimately you have nothing really to be afraid of. Because even death itself can only plunge you into glory. And when that truth, when that perspective grabs the center of your soul, what happens is as you navigate life's hardships, and there are many, there's a deep, almost unconquerable hope that permeates. There's a spot in The Lord of the Rings, not the movies, but the books, in which one of the characters is at the darkest season moment of his life. Feels like there's no hope. And they're in what's literally called the land of shadow. And there in the land of shadow, as he's laying down trying to get some rest, he looks up high into the sky. And in this land of deep darkness, he sees a bright star shining. And it says in that moment, it was like joy piercing his heart. And Tolkien writes this. He realized that in the end, the shadow was only a small and a passing thing. That there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Friends, if you know that, if you know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your life, you don't have to be afraid. You probably will still be afraid sometimes. I will too. But what this passage is telling us is the ultimate foe has been conquered and defeated. The best is coming. And there's hope. Let me give you one more implication before we move on to point two of our sermon. I've said there's always hope. You don't have to be afraid. Here's another implication of that same power at work in your life. Joy, not sorrow, will have the final word. On the night before his death, Jesus looked at his friends and he said, you're going to be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, he said, you're going to be sorrowful. Why? Because he was about to die. He was about to leave them. And they put all their hope in him. They loved him. He was their friend. And so that moment as Jesus is taken from them and dying on the cross, they thought, this is it. And they were going to be plunged into sorrow. And Jesus says, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He doesn't say he's going to take away sorrow and give them joy. He says the very thing that caused you sorrow is going to produce the joy. That which causes you sorrow and pain is going to become the fountain and source of your joy. Because of course it would be. He was talking about himself. He was saying, look, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die and it's going to look like failure. 
But three days later, the power of God is going to raise me from the dead. And when that happens, what looked like defeat will be revealed. What it actually is, victory. And death will be defeated. And sin will be forgiven. And hope will become real. And Jesus says, when that happens, you're going to have a joy that nobody can take away from you. (laughs) The most secure kind of joy. Why? Because there's no joy that's more secure than a joy that's produced by the very sorrows that preceded it. And that's what Jesus says is possible for you. That same power, no matter how sorrowful you might feel today or in the future, joy for the Christian is going to be the final word. Because God's power is able to take even the things that cause sorrow to produce joy. And the cross and the resurrection is the example of that. And that principle becomes the pattern for the life of God's people. Friends, I could go on and on. But I hope what you're seeing, what Paul's saying, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power is at work in your life. There's always hope. You don't have to be afraid. Joy is going to win. So here's the second point of our sermon. What does it mean to know? Because Paul's saying, look, I want you, he's praying, verse 17, 18, I want you to know this same power, that the power that raised Jesus is at work in your life. But here's the point. Here's the thing. I think if I did a poll, if we did a show of hands, and I were to ask you, raise your hand if you know that Jesus rose from the dead. Lots of you would stick your hands up. And yet, why is it that we who would say, yeah, I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know he died for me. I know he loves me. I know he rose from the dead. Why is it that we walk through life often feeling so hopeless? or so fearful, or so joyless? And the answer is because you know, but you don't really know. Or to say it differently, you know it in your head, but you don't know it in your heart. Years ago, there was a minister who said, there's a difference between a rational awareness that honey is sweet and a sensory experience of it. Right, it's one thing to know honey is sweet as a proposition. But it's a whole other thing to have honey land on your tongue and to experience its sweetness. And for many people, for many Christians, they know that Jesus rose from the dead as rational awareness. But when the Bible uses the word know, it's not talking about getting facts and information. It's talking about experience. So when Paul says, I want you to know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he's not talking about information you get from books. He's talking about a sensory lived experience of Jesus's power in your life. And only that will change you. You see, when we read Ephesians chapter one, and I say the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that's for you. Most of us just fly right by. And we're just so focused and fixed on the problems in front of us. But what if you really believed it? What if you really experienced that that promise was for you? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored a church in central London about 60, 70 years ago, put it like this. I've read this quote to you before, but so helpful. He says, look, the main trouble with us, I'm speaking of Christian people, is that we will not realize the truth about ourselves. You see, in this Christian life, there are many problems and difficulties, but more and more, it seems to me, 
that most of our problems, indeed, if not all of them, arise simply from the fact that we fail to realize and to understand and appreciate as we ought what is the real truth about us as Christian people. I've increasingly come to the conclusion that our troubles lie in the fact that we don't read the scripture properly. That is, notice, we tend to read them without meditating upon them, without taking a firm grip on them and grasping them for ourselves and realizing that these truths are truths about us. If we did, our entire lives would be revolutionized. I think Lloyd-Jones is probably right. That most, maybe all of the spiritual problems that we're facing, the gaps that we experience in our spiritual life, is the result of the fact that we think the promises of God are not really for us. We don't grasp them. We know the cliches, we know the platitudes, but we haven't taken hold of them ourselves. And as a result, they don't change us and they're not moving us. We have a rational awareness. We know facts about, but we've not experienced. Give you an example. I know, I'm aware of the fact that there's a place in the world called the Maldives. But I've never experienced it. But if you've been to that place, if you've been to the Maldives, you also know and are aware that it's there, but your knowledge is a different kind. You see, I know about it as a place that I've seen pictures of and dreamed about. But you know about it as a place where you felt the sea breeze blowing into your bungalow that was on top of the water. (laughs) And you remember what it was like to wake up in the morning and walk outside and fall into crystal clear water. And you remember how excited you were to go and how sad you were to leave. We both know the places there, but our knowledge is completely different. Because one is experienced and one is just facts. Lloyd-Jones says the great problem for us in our spiritual lives is that we haven't experienced these very truths that we're so aware of. When Paul says he wants you to know this power that raised Jesus from the dead, he's not talking about knowledge. He's talking about experience. He's talking about a sensory, felt, lived experience of the power of God at work and on display in your life. So, What does he want us to know? That power, it's for you. What does it mean to know? It means to experience it. So that leads us to the third and final and most important question of our sermon. Well, how can you know? How can you know? How can you experience this power in your life? Two things. First, surrender. Surrender. This morning, I want to invite you to pray the scariest most terrifying, most liberating prayer that you could ever pray. Not my will, but yours be done. To say to God, I'm going to, I give up control of my life. I surrender to you. Not my will, but yours be done. And the moment that we start doing that, the moment we recognize that we're not actually capable of being the kings and queens of our own lives, that we're not sufficient to control our own destiny. At that moment, when we relinquish control, what happens is we open up the possibility that God's power can be more fully at work and on display in our experience. Not my will, but yours be done. But that's a scary prayer to pray. 
Because to give your life over to someone else, to surrender to somebody, that feels risky. So what gives us the confidence and the hope to say to God, not my will, but yours be done? The only hope and the only confidence is to know that Jesus already prayed that for you. That the night before his death, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he kneels down in prayer and he says to God, his father, I don't want this cup. That is the cup of suffering, the cup of agony on the cross. I don't want to do this. And humanly speaking, he didn't. Who would? And yet there in the garden, what did Jesus do? He surrendered. And he said, yet to the father, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus surrenders himself and he goes to the cross to die in your place, to rescue and save you, to defeat death so you could have hope. You'll be able to say to God, not my will, but yours be done. When you see Jesus saying to the father, not my will, but yours be done. Because that meant him dying for you. And if someone loved you that much to sacrifice themselves for you, you can trust them. And that's the heart of the gospel. That we can surrender our life to God because Jesus surrendered his life to God for us. See that this morning. See the cross, not just as something that Jesus did for others, but for you. That he surrendered himself for you to the cross and to dying in your place. But it's not just looking back and seeing the cross. There's something else we have to see. We need to see where Jesus is right now. Come back with me to the text. Paul's saying the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Notice verse 20. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It's true. All those years ago, Jesus died on the cross. But what's Jesus doing right now at this moment? Well, the text says he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. You say, what's he doing there? Well, this passage doesn't tell us, but in another place we learn. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34 says, Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, same as Ephesians. But now Paul says in Romans 8, 34, at the right hand of God, he is interceding for us. At this moment, right now, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. What does that mean, interceding? To intercede is to plead on behalf of somebody, to act as their advocate. If you're looking for a new place to live and you work with a broker, if that broker is any good, they're meant to be your intercessor. They're meant to plead your cause, to fight for your interest, to get you into that place to live. They're the go-between. They stand between you and that place, and they're doing everything they can to get you in, if they're a good broker. Well, friends, Jesus is the heavenly intercessor. And right now, at that right hand of the Father, Jesus is pleading for you, interceding on your behalf. You say, what's he interceding about? I mean, on the cross, he finished the work of salvation. What's there to plead for? And friends, isn't it true? We know, yes, when Jesus died, he finished the work. But Jesus' finished work of salvation doesn't always feel finished in our lives. There's a gap, isn't there, between what Jesus accomplished and what we experience. And so right now, at this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding that the truth he accomplished for you would be felt. So that 
even though we know Jesus died to take away fear, that when you go into that next situation that's been scaring you, that Jesus would bear some of that fear. He's pleading for that at this moment. That right now, as you think about all the things that are weighing you down and filling you with sorrow, Jesus is pleading to the Father that the reality of his resurrection might so come into your life that that sorrow would start producing joy. And that you might know it's going to be okay. Jesus at the right hand of the Father praying and interceding for you. And some of you say, well, okay, but is that doing anything? Like, okay, great, he's up there praying, but, but is that working? I mean, it doesn't feel like it. Listen, some of you know what I'm talking about. If you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, I invite you into this. Some of you know that sometimes quite inexplicably, hope breaks out in your soul. So sometimes you come to church on a Sunday morning and it feels like the last place that you want to be. You're weighed down by grief and sorrow. You're overwhelmed by your boss. You're anxious about that person. And you just don't feel good about anything. And then you come into church on a Sunday morning and the band starts playing. And song number one, you're like, I don't know. And, and then song number two, something starts to happen in your heart. And song number three, and then we come into a time of response, and there's something about the music that it feels like it's actually lifting you out of yourself, and it's filling you with hope inexplicably. The band is good, but it's not because the band is good. It's because Jesus is interceding for you. If you ever hear a preacher say anything and it fills you with hope or it gives you conviction of sin or it makes you see the beauty of Jesus, it's not because the preacher's words were eloquent. It's because Jesus is praying for you. If you ever have a moment in which someone hurts you with their words and yet instead of responding in kind, you take a moment and you just breathe, and then you actually speak lovingly back to that person, it's not because you're awesome. It's because Jesus is pleading for you. If you ever have a moment in your life in which you want to do something, but you say no to doing it, because you know that doing it is going to numb your taste buds to the things of God, it's not because you have great self-control, it's because Jesus is praying for you. You see, we ask the question, are Jesus' prayers working? If we had eyes to see, we'd see how much they're working. That every inch, every moment, every inkling of spiritual growth in our life is because Jesus is praying for us. He's interceding. And so what we do today is we surrender. And we say, not our will, but yours be done. Help us to see you, Jesus, and what you've accomplished and to rest in you to rest in your heavenly intercession for us. And as you do that, when you do that, slowly and surely, you experience the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's my hope and prayer that in my life and yours too, in our church, in this city, we'd see more of that power on display. Let's pray for that now. Our God, thank you for this time in your word. And as we come now to this time of response, we pray for, for this. We pray to experience the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We pray that you would bring hope where we're hopeless, joy where we're profoundly sad, 
We pray that you'd give comfort in the midst of our deep fear. Help us to see and to experience Jesus who rose for us and who's alive interceding at your right hand on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.